All right, let's talk about William Shakespeare's Hamlet. One of the things that I'll be talking about as we go through the play is a series of uh, images or motifs that Shakespeare keeps returning to in the play. Uh, And I'm just going to list them now. I won't mention every time they happen in the play because you would go crazy. Uh, But I think if I mention them to you now, you'll begin to notice them for yourself as you read through the rest of the play. One is ears, uh, references to ears and hearing. Uh, the, the subject of acting and actors and performance comes up again and again. Suicide is very famously a topic in the play, and it comes up in several points. The contrast between being silent and speaking uh, comes up repeatedly as well. The topic of memory and remembering things cosmetics or makeup and uh, their uses, which is, of course, related to the theatrical and acting metaphors as well. Spying, uh, spying on people, overhearing people, and the idea of succession, of both in terms of genealogy of one son succeeding his father and just the succession of events or succession of people on the stage is a topic that we will see come up repeatedly. In fact, it comes up uh, if you look at the very first uh, stage direction. Uh, The stage direction will tell you, enter Bernardo and Francisco, two sentinels. Now, that gives a misleading image of what happens on stage because it's Francisco who comes in first. He comes in, he's a soldier, he's standing watch, he's standing guard. Now, the first thing that we think when we see a soldier standing guard is that they're guarding something, and if they're guarding something, there must be a threat. So that's the first image, the first idea, the first concept we get in this world is that it's under threat. Then the next thing that an audience would see is another soldier creeping up from behind Francisco. I know he had to be behind because all of the entrances to in the on the stage door were at the back of the stage. So here's this guy creeping up from behind Francisco. Now, if that was all you saw, you would think, "Oh, well, this is the threat. Here's the guy who's going to look behind you, you know, that builds up suspense." And then Bernardo, who's the guy sneaking up from behind, says, Who's there? Well, that's odd. Isn't it the, the, it's the guy who's on watch, who should say halt, who goes there, but it's the guy who's creeping up and we think maybe going to attack him who says who's there. And Francisco notes this immediately. He says, nay, answer me, stand and unfold yourself. Now that's an implicit stage direction. Stand and unfold yourself means that Bernardo must be crouched down and holding his shield in front of him, and he wants him to stand up and unfold himself. Bernardo yells out, Long live the king! That turns out to be a very ironic uh, greeting given the topic of this scene and of this play. And Francisco says, Bernardo? He, oh, you've come most carefully upon your hour. Uh, Tis now start twelve. Get thee to bed, Francisco. So uh, this is a, a succession that doesn't go smoothly. Um, he's Bernardo is there to relieve Francisco, but there's this moment of tension and confusion for the audience about what's going on. Um, 
And Bernardo tells Francisco, get to bed, and says, for this relief, much thanks, tis bitter cold, and I am sick at heart. Now, if somebody, if, if a friend or a co-worker told you that they were sick at heart, what would your natural question be? Why? What's up? What's wrong? But that's not Bernardo does respond with a question, but not the question that we've been led to expect. He says, have you had quiet guard? Not a mouse stirring. So they go on as if Francisco had never said he was sick at heart. Um, By the way, sickness and disease is another one of the uh, recurring motifs in the play. Uh, Now, all of this, we're just ten lines into the, the play, and it's already a very confusing experience for an audience. Things are not going the way we expect them to. Uh, and so he tells Bernard tells him, "If you do meet Horatio and Marcellus, the rivals of my watch, bid them make haste." Well, rivals, as the footnote will tell you, means partners or sharers. But of course, rivals means exactly the opposite. Rivals means opponents. Uh, the the context lets us know what it means, but the, that word itself is the same kind of simultaneously right and wrong elements that have been going on through this, these first few moments of the play. And now, Francisco, who has been relieved of guard duty, is the one who does say, who's there? When it's actually Bernardo who should be saying that. And so we get in comes Horatio. Now, Horatio is going to look different. These other guys are all soldiers. They're all in armor. Horatio is a student. Uh, he's, he will be dressed very differently. He's a civilian. He'll be dressed very differently. Um, and he asks, what has this thing appeared again tonight? So now we've got back to the, the idea we had at the very beginning of the scene, uh, that there is some kind of threat, but it doesn't sound like a military threat. And look at the way that Marcellus describes it. And he says, uh, Horatio says, "'Tis but our fantasy, and will not let belief take hold of him, touching this dreaded sight, twice seen of us. Therefore I have entreated him along with us to watch the minutes of this night, that, if again this apparition come, he may approve our eyes and speak to it.'" So this threat was not a military threat that soldiers would be there for, it's something supernatural. It's an apparition, a dread sight. And Bernardo is going to tell us all about it. Let us once again assail your ears that are so fortified against our story. Um, and he has this long, this, this kind of wind-up. It feels like it's going to be a long speech. He tells me even to sit down. This is going to take a while. His last night of all, when yon same star that's westward from the pole had made his course to illume that part of heaven where now it burns, Marcellus and myself, the bell then beating one. So he's probably, he's pointing at the sky, at the star. And this, this is a wonderful piece of theatrical uh, uh, distraction because when he points up there, the audience looks up there and they don't notice how the ghost got on stage. But there he is. And wonderfully, and typically in this play, the ghost that they are there explicitly waiting for surprises them. Uh, so the, the, it's fulfilling our expectation and uh, upturning it at the same time. So they, uh, it says, peace break the off, look where it comes again. 
and they say to Horatio, thou art a scholar, speak to it, Horatio. You've been to college, you know how to talk to ghosts. Um, and he does. He asks him, you know, what art thou that has usurped this time of night? You know, I charge thee, speak. And the ghost doesn't say anything. Here again, they're expecting a speech, and they get silence. That's going to be a, a pattern that happens a lot in the play. And says it's gone and will not answer. And we say, it looks just like the king, the, the king who's dead. Um, and Horatio is, in what particular thought to work, I know not. I, I don't know exactly what this means, but it's, it's some, some strange eruption to our state. And so now Marcellus... Uh, as, as he did before, as uh, Bernardo did before, but now Marcellus is having them all sit down and and ask a question instead of giving an answer. He's asking a question. Tell me, he that knows, why this same strict and most observant watch so nightly toils the subject of the land. Now we're getting back to the idea of the military threat. But we're not interested in the military threat anymore. We want to know about the ghost. Now they're going back and talking about the um, the reasons they were on guard duty. Notice also how odd it is that it's Marcellus who's asking. Shouldn't it be Horatio? Marcellus, it, it, the guard is saying, everybody sit down and tell me, if you know, why are we guarding this castle again? Um, and the one who tells them is Horatio the one who you would think would be the least qualified to know about any of that. He says, that can I, at least the whisper goes so. Uh, there again, certainty and uncertainty all at the same time. And he tells them the whole history. Fortinbras uh, of Norway, the king of Norway, um, who is, uh, was killed by old King Hamlet, and now uh, Fortinbras' son, young Fortinbras, is, uh, uh, as he says, has sharked up a list of lawless resolutes for food and diet to some enterprise that has a stomach in it. Um, basically, they're they're making raids into uh, from uh, from Norway into Denmark uh, to try to regain the lands that were lost. Um, so now we get all of these details about the uh, the military threat when all we want to know about the ghost. And the ghost appears again, and once again, the ghost that they are there specifically to wait for surprises them. Uh, again, uh, Horatio asks it to speak, and it says nothing. We get the sound of the, the of dawn, the, the, the cock crows, uh, which signals dawn, and the ghost disappears again. It says it was about to speak when the cock crew. Um, and then comes the, the morning at the very end of the scene. Horatio says, line 166, But look, the morn in russet mantle clad walks o'er the dew of yon high eastward hill. So the, the dawn is yet another of a series of simultaneously inevitable and surprising entrances. Uh, we got that with Bernardo and Francisco at the very opening minutes of the play. Uh, we got it with the ghost twice. Now we get it with the sun. Um, so they say they're going to tell young Hamlet, for this spirit dumb to us will speak to him. That contrast between speaking and silence. Uh, now, this is a very kind of creepy scene, especially if it's well staged. Uh, you know, it's, it's frightening. And it gives us information, but not the kind of information that we're looking for. 
And this is very different from the standard revenge tragedy. Um, for example, in the Spanish tragedy, which was kind of the the original revenge tragedy in Renaissance England, uh, the first scene has a ghost too, but there the ghost comes out, he talks to the audience, he says, I'm the ghost of so-and-so, and I was killed by so-and-so, and I'm going to tell my brother to go avenge me uh, because of this and that. We get all the information clearly laid out to us. Here, nothing is clearly laid out to us. We are plunged into a mystery. We don't understand what's going on. We don't know exactly what the ghost wants. Um, it's all uh, very unsettling. And Shakespeare, I think, very deliberately starts the play that way. In contrast, scene two is very orderly. We have a, a flourish, the trumpets come in, we have the king, the queen, the counselors, the court is coming in. It's a very orderly procession. Uh, we know there, there are no surprise entrances here. Ah, now everything is kind of, we're going to get what we want. Everything is organized and settled and clear. Except that in terms of the audience watching the play, something is a little off here too. Because the guy who has this big long speech and starts talking, who's obviously the king based on his, you know, he's wearing the crown, he has center stage, he has the attention of everyone on stage. And there's another guy on stage, he's standing off to the side, he's all dressed in black, and he's the star of the show. He's probably the most famous actor in England at whatever time you're watching this play. Um, and so our detention is divided. Things don't quite fit right here either. And look at the king's uh, Claudius uh, speech. It's it gives us a lot of very orderly information, but it's unsettling in its own way. Um, he has there are a lot of these logical gestures. There uh, yet, therefore, now uh, he uses the good transitions and everything. Uh, but look at how he describes his marriage to his brother's wife. Uh, this is line eight of scene two. Therefore, our sometime sister, now our queen, the imperial jointress to this warlike state, have we, as twere, with a defeated joy, with an auspicious and a dropping eye, with mirth in funeral and with dirge in marriage, in equal scale weighing delight and dole, taken to wife. Now look how padded out that is. Basically what he's saying is, therefore, our sometime sister have we taken to wife. But he smooths that all over with these kind of nicely rhetorically balanced, almost too perfectly rhetorically balanced phrases, delight and dole, uh, an auspicious and a dropping eye, one eye looking up and one eye looking down, which is, of course, literally impossible. Um, you know, uh, mirth in funeral, dirge in marriage. Um, it's all very, uh, it's, 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 you know, he, he's a politician. He's speaking in this political rhetoric, and but he's using it to kind of uh, cover up rather than to reveal things, uh, to make it clear what uh, what's just happened. But he does deal with things very efficiently. He starts off, he talks about young Fortinbras and how he's going to deal with him. He's sending messengers to Norway um, who are going to take care of that. Uh, though that's probably not what we wanted. I mean, if we're an audience to a play, we want a war. Here he is sending diplomats. 
Um, then he turns to Laertes, the uh, young man, and uh, he asks him, uh, what is it, Laertes? Line 44, you cannot speak of reason to the Dane and lose your voice. Um, here's another moment where we expect speech and get silence. And he says, speak up, it, it's your turn now. And what he's asking is the leave to return to France. He's been studying in Paris and he wants to go back. Uh, Polonius, his father, says that he can. And this is the introduction of the, the Polonius subplot in the play and his family. And we'll see how they interact with the Hamlet family. Then finally, we get to the star of the show who's been sitting there kind of fuming the whole time. But no one on stage has acknowledged him until this moment. And the first thing he does is he has a little aside. That is, he talks directly to the audience, not to the king. He's, uh, uh, the king says, but now my cousin Hamlet and my son. And Hamlet says, to us, a little more than kin and less than kind. Now, he's kind of making fun of Claudius's very kind of carefully, rhetorically balanced language earlier in the scene. Um, he's, you know, Hamlet is a smartass. Uh, and he gets us on his side almost immediately here, right? Um, he's, you know, any, anyone who kind of punctures pomposity is always uh, a good theatrical entertainment. Um, and he does it again, his punning language. How is it the clouds still hang on you? Hamlet says, no, not so, my lord. I am too much in the sun. And that there's a pun there on S-O-N. He says, I'm now uh, the, the son of a dead father and the son of my uncle who married my mother. Um, and then his mother, Queen Gertrude, tries to tell him, well, you know, cast uh, thy knighted color off. You know, why are you still wearing mourning clothes? You know, we've gotten married now. It's time to get uh, get with the program. And Hamlet, she tells him it's common that, you know, this is the, the common fate of humanity. And she says, why seems it so particular with thee? And Hamlet says, seems, madam? Nay, it is. I know not seems. I don't know about, I'm not, I'm not putting on act. This is the real me. You know, all of these other, you know, crying and wearing black and all of that. He says, line 84, they are actions that a man might play probably very pointedly looking at Claudius, but I have that which in with which passes show these but the trappings and the suits of woe. And then Claudius launches on another long speech uh, about how he needs to uh, give up this uh, uh, this unmanly grief, as he said. You know, it's the, the, the nature is all about people dying. We have to, you know, it's sad, but we accept it and we move on. You know, he says, line uh, 108, uh, we pray you throw to earth this unprevailing woe and think on of us as of a father. And uh, says, uh, and as we beseech you, bend you to remain here in the cheer and comfort of our eye. So Hamlet wants to go back to school the same way that Laertes does. But while Claudius is granted Laertes' request, he is denying Hamlet's. Uh, and notice the, the schools that they're going to. Laertes is going to Paris. Hamlet is going to Wittenberg. Now, uh, in the kind of the, the minds of the original audience, those would be two radically different places. You know, Paris 
is the party school. It's Paris, right? Wittenberg is the serious, heavy German philosophical university. So even in the in that, we're getting some uh, characterization of these two very different young men. Um, and after all that long speech, Gertrude comes in, line one eighteen, and says, "Let not thy mother lose her prayers, Hamlet. I pray thee, stay with us. Go not to Wittenberg." And Hamlet says, I shall in all my best obey you, madam. Now, that's a very pointed uh, uh, message he's given. I'm going to obey you, mother, not him. It's also very formal, uh, addressing her as you instead of thee or thou is more formal. We... uh, we feel like in modern times, thou seems very uh, formal and serious and religious and everything, and uh, you is just everyday language. Uh, it was almost exactly the opposite for Shakespeare's time. Uh, uh, you was the formal form of address, and thou was more intimate and familiar. Again, almost exactly the opposite of the way we think of them today. Uh, and But Han- the Claudius says, why it is a loving and a fair reply. Of course, it's not at all, but he is taking it as that to kind of smooth things over. Um, And then as he leaves, uh, Hamlet has his first soliloquy. And we'll see in these these soliloquies, they're they're quite different from the ones we saw that Faustus gave. Um, There's more of a sense of an individual mind at work. Uh, Of course, there's also even richer and more stunning poetry. Um, And so Hamlet begins his soliloquy, soliloquy, line 129. Oh, that this too, too solid flesh would melt, thaw, and resolve itself into a Jew, or that the everlasting had not fixed his cannon against self-slaughter. Just think of the the again the, the things the words are doing here. Sullied flesh, but it's it was pronounced and probably in some in some editions it's spelled solid, which fits with the idea of of the pun with melt. This solid flesh would melt, resolve itself into a Jew. Of course, a Jew is the French word for goodbye. Uh, so another double meaning there. Or that the everlasting had not fixed his canon against self-slaughter. Now here, canon means canon law. But the other words in that line, fixed and slaughter, call up the image of a literal physical canon that shoots cannonballs, which in fact we've just heard about from Claudius. He says on his exit line that he will... Uh, the great cannon to the clouds shall tell that uh, they'll shoot off these cannon shots as they're having their festivities. Um, so again, just in those first four lines, all of those kind of, of, of uh, punning, rhyming ideas and meanings uh, knocking around in there. Um, and he, notice he calls Denmark an unweeded garden that grows to seed. And here, that image of the of the garden and something rank in Denmark, something is rotten in the seat in the state of Denmark. Uh, one of the famous lines in the play. Um, and 
what he's particularly upset about is it's just been two months, not so much, not even two months. Um, the ex- so excellent a king that is his late father as this as his Hyperion to a satyr. Hyperion is the the sun god, and a satyr was half goat, half man. Uh, so that's a, a, you know about as different as you can get. Um, and he, that's what he's upset about, right? How could they have forgotten? How could my mother have forgotten the this wonderful man that I'm still grieving for? And going on to marry this, you know, this satyr, uh, he has a very low opinion of Claudius, uh, very clearly, uh, as he says, my father's brother, but no more like my father than I to Hercules. Now, Hamlet, as you know, we will see, and we already can tell, is not at all like Hercules. Uh, Hercules is all brawn, no brains. Uh, Hamlet, certainly not no brawn, but he is all brains. Um, So again, that contrast, these antitheses that he's setting up. Um, And he says, wicked speed to post with such dexterity to incestuous sheets. So he calls this an incestuous union. Now, it's, of course, it's not literally. She's not marrying a, a, his mother didn't marry a relative. It was a brother-in-law. But it still is, I guess, technically incestuous. And he says, uh, but break my heart, for I must hold my tongue. Here again, that contrast between speaking and silence comes in. Um, so we get the, in, in this soliloquy, the the full emotional force of Hamlet's mind here, how depressed he is and how outraged he is uh, that not everybody shares what he's feeling. And now, after the soliloquy is over, Horatio and the two guards, Marcellus and Bernardo, come in and uh, notice Horatio does all the talking. He's the friend of of Hamlet. They've been in school together. Uh, he, He came to sees his the funeral and uh, uh, Hamlet again quips I pray pretty do not mock me fellow student I think it was to see my mother's wedding indeed my lord it followed hard upon thrift thrift Horatio the funeral baked meats did coldly furnish forth the marriage table so they you know he's saying they use the leftovers from the funeral service for the marriage and finally, Horatio gets around to telling him, and you can tell by the way he presents it, he, he knows he's likely not to be believed, and Hamlet has a lot of questions about it, and he tries to catch them up. Wait, you say he was wearing armor? Well, then you didn't see his face. Says, oh, no, no, he wore the, the visor up, so you could see that. Um, and he agrees to go watch with them uh, uh, that night and see if the ghost appears again. Um and then we get, in scene three, we focus on the Polonius story and his, of his family. We get Laertes, who we've seen, and his sister Ophelia. Now, Laertes is going off, and uh, you can tell he's kind of the dominant one in this scene uh, between them. Ophelia just gets little half lines, you know, do you doubt that? No more but so. Just She kind of fills in his lines. He's the one in charge. Ophelia is very definitely taking, you know, uh, the second place here. And what he's worried about is her relationship with Hamlet. 
Um, and he tells her, line 16, you must fear his greatness weighed, his will is not his own. He may not, as unvalued persons do, carve for himself. So he's saying, look, he's a prince. Even if he does love you, uh, that doesn't mean anything. That's not how marriages are done with, among royalty. Uh, and he, he warns her, and he keeps using the word fear. Fear it, Ophelia. Fear it, my dear sister. Best safety lies in fear. Um, and he warns her that, line 29, if with too credent ear you list his songs or lose your heart or your chaste treasure open to his unmastered importunity. Now, that's a very delicate and roundabout way to say that, you know, you might have sex with him. Um, and Ophelia comes back at him and says, well, I will do that, but, you know, I, I, while I'm being virtuous, you better remember to be virtuous too. And he says, oh, hear me not. Then Polonius comes in, and Polonius gives a long speech of advice, uh, which is very famous. He says, look, uh, uh, and these few precepts in thy memory, look thou character, that is, uh, note them down. Uh, and he's giving, it, it, this is something that also happens quite a bit with Shakespeare. You can, and many people do, take this out of context as a set speech, and it's great advice. You know, it, it's, it's very, it, it's a little bit um, uh, cliched in places, but still sound advice. But the character of Polonius undercuts it because we've already seen that Polonius is kind of pompous and self-important and uh, very verbose. And so the things he says uh, almost kind of slide off. Uh, they're saying, oh, yeah, here's the old man giving that speech again. Um, notice he, he also picks up on this theme of, of speaking in silence. He says, give thy thoughts no tongue, nor any unproportioned thought his act. You know, give every man thy ear, but few thy voice. Um, and he ends, um, this above all to thine own self be true, and it must follow as the night the day, thou canst not then be false to any man. Uh, so again, it sounds very good, and Laertes is taking taking off and tells uh, uh, Ophelia to remember what he has said to her, and uh, and she says, "'Tis in my memory locked," uh, line 85, "'and you yourself shall keep the key of it.'" Laertes leaves, Polonius, "'What is it, Ophelia, he has said to you?' And that tells us a lot about the relationship, right? So Polonius, you, you, okay, that's, yeah, nice, a secret you're keeping. Tell me what it is. Um, Polonius is all about wanting to know everybody's secrets. Um, and she says that he is, uh, Hamlet has offered many tenders of his affection. And Polonius, very much like Laertes, is not impressed by this. He says, line 114, I do know when the blood burns how prodigal the soul lends the tongue vows. You know, when a man's in, young man's in heat, he'll say anything uh, and tells her, from this time, be something scanter of your maiden presence. Um, so you, you're, not, you're not to talk with him anymore. This is not uh, suitable. So we're setting that up, and that will uh, the relationship between Hamlet and Ophelia and Polonius will uh, uh, run through the rest of the play. But then we get back in scene four to where we started the play. We're out on the battlements. They're waiting for the ghost to appear. And while they're waiting, 
they hear cannons, two cannons go off, and they ask, what is it? Well, as Hamlet says, line 8 of scene 4, the king doth wake tonight and takes his rouse, keeps wassails and the swaggering upspring reels, and as he drains his draughts of Rhenish down, the kettle drum and trumpet thus bray out the triumph of his pledge. So basically, he's up drink, he's up partying and drinking, and you know, the, as they say, you know, kind of chug, 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 and when he downs one, they shoot off the cannons. Um, and Hamlet is, uh, you know, yeah, Horatio asks, "Is this a custom? Is this how they do things?" And he says, "Yeah, it is, but uh, I wish we didn't have it. Um, it, it, it. You know, it uh, uh, makes people think we're drunkards." And then he launches into this philosophical speech, uh, starting line 23. So oft it chances, in particular men, that for some vicious mole of nature in them, as in their birth, wherein they are not guilty, since nature cannot choose his origin, by the o'ergrowth of some complexion, oft breaking down the pales and forts of reason, or by some habit that too much o'erleavens the form of plausive manners, that these men carrying, I say, the stamp of one defect, being nature's livery or fortune's star, his virtues else, be they as pure as grace, as infinite as man may undergo, shall in the general censure take corruption from that particular fault. The dram of evil doth all the noble substance often doubt to his own scandal." So he's saying how, you know, we, even a, a basically good man has one flaw, well that can overpower everything about him um, and this is something that you know people talk about a lot in the um, the idea of the tragic flaw this is one of the ideas places in the play where it addresses that concept well the ghost shows up and uh, Hamlet you know angels and ministers of grace defend us um, and it says line 46 let me not burst in ignorance but tell why thy canonized bones, hersed in death, have burst their cerements. Why the sepulchre, when we saw thee quietly interred, hath oped his ponderous and marble jaw to cast thee up again. Um, notice here the, the can, can, uh, canonized bones, thy sacred bones, but all in language of bursting, uh, burst in ignorance, burst their ceremonies. Uh, so the idea of canon comes in here again, and the canon that we've just heard uh, from uh, uh, Claudius's party. Um, now, Horatio and the other ones don't want him to go. They say that he could uh, deprive your sovereignty of reason and draw you into madness. And you no, know, Hamlet is going to go. And so in scene five, we get the conversation between Hamlet and, his, and the ghost of his father. Um, and he tells them, you know, I am thy father's spirit, uh, doomed for a certain term to walk the night. Uh, it says, but that I am forbid, this is line 12, scene 5, but that I am forbid to tell the secrets of my prison house, I could a tale unfold whose lightest word would harrow up thy soul, freeze thy young blood, make thy two eyes like stars start from their spheres, thy knotted and combined locks depart, and each particular hair to stand on end like quills upon the fearful porcupine. But this eternal blazon must not be to ears of flesh and blood. 
So here again, he's uh, all the things that I could say, but I won't say them. Um, and this all makes it sound uh, harrowing, uh, as he says, harrow thy soul, uh, it's hellish. And he says, list, list, oh list. And the ghost is full of these three, uh, these triplets. Later he says, you know, foul, strange, and unnatural. Um, uh, later in the speech, around uh, line 77, of life, of crown, of queen, at once dispatch. Unhouseled, disappointed, unannealed. Oh, horrible, oh, horrible, most horrible. And his closing line, a Jew, a Jew, a Jew. So one of the, the patterns in the, the ghost's speeches is or these these triplets that he comes up with sometimes the same word repeated sometimes uh, uh, parallel words in 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 sets of three um, and what he he tells the story line uh, starting around line thirty four tis given out that sleeping in mine orchard a serpent stung me so the whole ear of Denmark is by a forged process of my death rankly abused. But know thou, noble youth, the serpent that did sting thy father's life now wears his crown. Yeah, the story was out that I was sleeping in the orchard and a serpent stung me. Yeah, that's all a cover-up. It was your uncle who killed me. And notice Hamlet says, oh, my prophetic soul, my uncle. That's who, you know, he said, I, I, I knew it. I knew I didn't like that guy. Um, and he tells the story of how this happened. Notice that it's, uh, this starts line 59. Sleeping within my orchard, my custom always of the afternoon, upon my secure hour, thy uncle stole with juice of cursed hebena in a vial. And in the porches of my ear did pour the leprous distillment whose effect holds such an enmity with blood of man that swift as quicksilver it courses through the natural gates and alleys of the body, and with a sudden vigor it, it doth posset like curd like eager droppings into milk, and the thin and wholesome blood. So did it mine. So it kind of pours this poison in his ear that corrupts his whole body. Notice that that's very much the image that Hamlet was talking about uh, in the beginning of the last scene of the, the one dram of evil that corrupts everything. That's what this, this poison is like. Um, it says, Thus was I sleeping by a brother's hand of life, of crown, of queen, at once dispatched, cut off, even in the blossoms of my sin, unhouseled, disappointed, unannealed, no reckoning made, but sent to my account with all my imperfections on my head. And so one part of the, the tragedy here is that the, the ghost has died without having the chance to make a confession. He's All of his imperfections on his head, he didn't get the chance to have that final confession and be cleaned. Uh, and he seems to be in a kind of purgatory now. He's kind of paying for the, the sins uh, while uh, it, that he wouldn't have had to if he had had a proper death where he could have uh, had his reconciliation. Um, and then he, he gives Hamlet his, his marching orders here. If thou hast nature in thee, bear it not. Let not the royal bed of Denmark be a couch for luxury and damned incest. 
So he's saying, "This is your this is your charge. This is typical in a revenge tragedy. You know, the the ghost comes out and tells you, I've been murdered. You've got to avenge my death." What's not typical is what he says next. But, howsomever thou pursues this act, taint not thy mind, nor let thy soul contrive against thy mother aught. Leave her to heaven, and to those thorns that in her bosom lodge to prick and sting her. Now, a revenge tragedy is all about, it's kind of the Old Testament, an eye for an eye. Right? They, you know, you killed my father, I'm going to kill you. And so it is by its very nature, it's against the Christian doctrine of, you know, of turn the other cheek, of uh, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And usually, revenge tragedies very carefully ignore those uh, those aspects. But here, the ghost is bringing them up right in the mid, right as soon as he tells Hamlet to seek revenge, he reminds him of the Christian idea of leave her to heaven. You know, her own conscience will punish her. So, for Claudius, you're a revenge hero. To your mother, you're a good Christian son. So, the ghost is really asking him irreconcilable things here. Two different systems of values that kind of collide here and are never fully reconciled. Um, Again, it's a very unusual thing for a uh, a revenge tragedy to do. And Hamlet, once the the ghost leaves, you know, swears to remember you. Says, "Yea, from the table of my memory, I'll wipe away all trivial fond records, all saws of books, all forms, all pressures past that youth and observation copied there, and thy commandment all alone shall live within the book and volume of my brain." unmixed with baser matter. This is, you know, this will be the sole thing that I think about. I won't think about anything else. And use, he uses the image of his memory as a, as a book or volume of his brain. The only thing written there will be revenge. Um, and says, oh, villain, line 106, villain, smiling, damned villain, my tables, meet it as I set it down that one may smile and smile and be a villain. At least I'm sure it may be so in Denmark. Now, he just said that nothing would be written in his brain except this uh, this command from the ghost. And the very next thing he does is get out his tables, a little book, and write down, oh, that's a good thing, let me remember that, that's something I want to think about. Um, again and again, the play is doing this, just as the ghost did with his uh, prescription for revenge for Claudius and forgiveness for Gertrude. Um here, nothing in my, no record but your word, and here I am writing something down that's quite different. Um, so then Horatio and Marcellus come in, and we have this very interesting scene the, where Hamlet won't tell them anything. Um, you know, he says, well, what, what did the ghost tell you? And he says, well, he says, there's never a villain dwelling in all Denmark, but he's an errant knave. There's never, a, no villain here except he's a, a villain. And Horatio says, there needs no ghost, my lord, come from the grave to tell us this. Is it really, that's it? Uh, that villains are villainous? Um, but uh, Hamlet, uh, notice Hamlet is really manic here. 
And he's going, why? You're right. You are in the right. And so, without more circumstance at all, I hold it fit that we shake hands and part, as you, as your business and desire, shall point you, for every man hath business and desire, such as it is, and for my own poor part, I will go pray. And Horatio says, these are but wild and whirling words, my lord. He says, what, what's wrong with you? You're, you know, um, and so he makes them swear never to make known what you have seen tonight. And we hear the ghost, you know, crying, swear, under the stage. Now, the stage would have been raised up. He would have literally been under the stage. And Hamlet points that out. He, he brings out his uh, sword to swear on. Um, and look at line 166. He says, well said, old mole. Canst work in the earth so fast? A worthy pioneer. Once more remove, good friends. So they went to where the voice of the ghost was to swear, and then the ghost is another part of the stage, and he says, oh, wait, he's over there. Let's run over there. Um, so this is, again, it's almost a comic scene when it, when you see it staged, of him running around the stage, you know, chasing the, the, the ghost's voice. Um, and he tells uh, tells Horatio, there are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, that are dreamt of in your philosophy. Um now this is, you know, there's so many great lines in this play, and they've all become, uh, or mo- many of them have become such a, a part of our culture that it's hard to remember that they were invented here. There, there's an old joke about a, a guy who went to see a production of, of Hamlet, and they asked how he liked it. He says, well, it was pretty good, but it was just too full of quotations, uh, of course, this is the source of all those quotations. You've heard so many of these lines before because it's become such a deep, in, deeply ingrained part of our culture, and that sometimes gets in the way of seeing it freshly. Uh, but uh, on the other hand, you get constant great lines in it, so it kind of balances out. Uh, and Hamlet tells them their vow. He says, How strange or odd so near I bear myself, as I perchance hereafter, shall think meet to put an antic disposition on, that you at such time seeing me never shall, uh, so he goes on, don't give any indication that you know that this is just an act, that I'm acting. And he says, it's interesting, he says he's going to put an antic or, or frantic or madcap uh, disposition on. Well, that's how he's been acting. He's already done that. So, Wait, is he going to put on this act, or was this an act, or is he saying it's an act because he doesn't want them to know? Um, it's uh, This is one of the, the classic uh, critical conundrums about the play, about Hamlet's madness. How much of it is an act, and how much of it is real? Is he really losing his mind? Um, now, it's interesting that in the source for this play, and this, like, almost all of Shakespeare's plays is based on prior material, there was a very clear and simple and understandable reason why Hamlet was pretending to be crazy. He was very young, uh, much younger than uh, Hamlet here, and he was afraid he would be killed. So he went. he pretended to be crazy to deflect attention from him so he wouldn't be considered a threat. That really doesn't apply here. And that's absolutely typical of the way Shakespeare deals with his sources. He very often takes something that has a simple, clear, dramatic rationale and a motivation for it, 
and takes out the motivation. He keeps the events, but he removes, he changes them in such a way so that the motiva- original motivation makes no sense, and he doesn't provide a new motivation. Uh, it makes his characters very enigmatic and in some ways very real. That's the way real people are. We don't always understand why people do things that they do. Uh, a part of the reason Hamlet seems like such a fully realized person is that we can't pin him down. Uh, we, we don't understand exactly what's going on with him all the time. Um, all right, so Hamlet you know, gets them to swear his rest perturbed spirit and ends the scene with a, a strong closing couplet. The time is out of joint, O cursed spite, that ever I was born to set it right. Now, that would be a great place to end the scene, right? But it doesn't. He goes, nay, come, let's go together. So it undercuts the, the, and again, this is something that the play does repeatedly. It will set something up and then zig, zigs, think, make you think it's going to zig and then suddenly it zags. And the ending of the, of the first act is just a very tiny example of that, of the way the play is constantly playing with our expectations and undermining them and keeping us off balance. Uh, it's part of what makes it such a, a, a fascinating uh, play for anyone. Um, all right, now in Act 2, most of Act 2 is, we'll see, briefly return to Polonius and Ophelia. Um, and see, notice that what Polonius thinks is going on with Hamlet, what his explanation is, and how doggedly he pursues that explanation. Look at the, a couple of things to look at in uh, Act 2, which is mostly the big, long scene 2. Notice the difference in the way that Hamlet relates to Polonius, and he does, and the way he relates to his old school buddies, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. How does he talk to them differently? How does he behave differently around them? Uh, notice, too, there's, uh, there'll be some actors that come into the play, and there's a long scene that they do. Think about how that scene is thematically relevant to what's happening with Hamlet uh, and why it, it's here in the play. And finally, the act two will end with another long soliloquy, and that's very worth paying attention to. See what is on Hamlet's mind, what his, he's doing, uh, why, what plan he comes up with, and how he expresses it in the soliloquy. So we'll be talking about all that and much more next time. Uh, Questions about Hamlet? Uh, If you don't have them, you're not thinking hard enough. Uh, You can address questions to drmarkwomack at gmail.com. Thanks for your attention. I'll talk to you next time.